today we have Nick and we have a special guest with you. We have Margaret Kimberly. She is from the Black Agenda Report. She is here with us today to talk about her book, Prudential, Black America and the Presidents. Welcome, Margaret. Hi, thanks for having me. So I guess the first thing we'll start off with is uh, tell us about your new book and and your writing in it. Sure. So my book, I just I'll just hold it up as do this. Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents, excuse me, was actually uh, published last year. And uh, I go president by president in chronological order. Uh, it's 45 chapters uh, uh, about each uh, of uh, the presidents of the, through Trump, from George Washington to Donald Trump, uh, discussing their treatment of and relationship with uh, Black America. So it starts off with a lot of slaveholders. 10 of the first 12 presidents were slaveholders, as you know. Um, and uh, uh, how the foundations of the country, the anti-Black foundations of the country play out over the decades and over the centuries, uh, so much so that um, uh, anti-Blackness is a part of, um, uh, an integral part of American politics, uh, it is a winner politically. So even the first black president would um, uh, express the racist tropes, for example, about black men being irresponsible and tell cousin Pookie to get off the couch and, and so forth. Yep. And uh, that Trump was not the first or only racist uh, president. And um, uh, Joe Biden has his own issues. He's protected by being in the Democratic Party. But he was a point person against uh, busing to achieve school integration. He brags about having written, I wrote the damn bill, the crime bill of the 90s, which put so many black people in prison uh, and, uh, and so on. So it's uh, uh, obviously, I think it's a good book. I've been told it's a brisk read. It's uh, not very long, about 200 pages. And that's published by Steerforth Press, and you can get the book, an ebook, an audio book, which uh, I narrate. I'm really glad that you wrote about this book, uh, Margaret, because it's something I always tell people about. People always look at me crazy when I uh, tell them that I do not support the Democratic Party because they assume that that party is owed our support. I kind of want to get your thoughts on this because I always said that I think Joe Biden is one of the most anti black. Mm -hmm. uh, public figures in the modern American history. The only reason I say modern because I don't want people to pick it up. Oh, what about slave owners? Like, okay, let's right. discuss maybe the last 50 to 60 years. I want I, I, I want you to put me on, on the spot because I always say that. I always say he's the most anti-Black president. Mm -hmm. How accurate do you think that is? Oh, very much so. I mean, this is, as I just said, he, um, uh, the, well, first of all, the crime bill was Bill Clinton. So he goes in that category. Yeah. Um, but uh, his comments uh, about uh, race and about black people, uh, he once said, I don't want my kids to grow up in a racial jungle. And that's where <laughs> we're headed. If yeah. he did, he said that. This is the guy yep. who told the story about a black man named Corn Pop. It was a stupid story. It was a I racist guess, story. Yes, too. very much so. The point of the story was that he would beat up on black people. So Corn Pop was, you know, the standard. Yep. Of uh, all of uh, Black America. What did he say before uh, Obama uh, chose him as his running mate? He's clean and articulate and something else, something yeah. that Black people aren't supposed to be. 
But he, that is ironically why he was chosen to be Obama's running mate. Obama was perceived as being this leftist, which I wish he had been, but at any rate, so he chose a uh, running mate from the right wing of the Democratic Party. So, and then, you know, after election day, he had this uh, meeting with people who are described as civil rights leaders. I don't think that's the best way to describe all of them. But at any rate, he was very rude to them. And someone uh, um, leaked the recording, and I'm glad they did. Uh, he was talking down to them. He was very rude to them. And that's how he sees Black people and how he sees himself vis-a-vis -vis Black people. So I think um, we've had 45 racist presidents to varying degrees yes. of worse than <laughs> yes. others. Um, but uh, yeah, he's um, it's because he follows Trump. You know, he gets a he gets a pass because he's not Trump. And um, you know, he, all these horrible things he said and done over the years. There, the way the system functions, there's always one party that's predominantly white, one that's predominantly black. Uh, the Democratic Party was the party of the segregated South. Uh, after the days of the civil rights movement, the liberation movement, there was a switch. The last Democrat to get a majority of white votes was Lyndon Johnson in 1964. Since that time, Republicans have been the white people's party. Black people desperately cling to the Democrats to protect us from the Republicans. And uh, that is how we end up with some of these people who are just... Um, who are terrible for us. They get protection because they're not the segregationist party, which is what the Republicans yeah. turned into. Yeah, and that's a marvelous answer because I love how you bring up the crime bill. A lot of people forget that Joe Biden was pushing Ronald Reagan to the right when it comes to uh, criminal justice. And he played a very large role in dragging the uh, the Bill Clinton administration to the right on many issues, uh, the Casario state being one of them. One of the other reasons why I say that Joe Biden is one of the most anti-black public figures in modern era, because the crime bill is one thing to look at and that's very important, but a lot of people underestimate the impact of the bankruptcy bill. And the bankruptcy bill made it so, there was a lot of fraudulent activity, activities that Wall Street was able to get away with uh, when it comes to tanking black wealth, and and that made it harder for people that sell for medical debt, people that sell for student loan debt, uh, to ease their burdens. And when you look at the uh, people who are mostly affected by these uh, societal issues, it's black Americans. So Joe Biden is, is complicit with not only locking us up, but with the financial destruction of the black community. Sure, he is. You know, um, uh, as uh, people, most people I think know, student loan debt cannot be discharged in bankruptcy. Yeah. And um, it has been pointed out that the president has the power to forgive up to $50,000 in student loan debt. And Biden has said he's not going to do it. And he'll write off small amounts or you don't have to pay it so much or just, just write it off. It should be forgiven. Um, the bankruptcy bill makes it hard to uh, file bankruptcy. But we have a, a system where... Um, Real wages haven't gone up in something like 40 years. So people are living on debt of various kinds. And uh, to be told that um, 
you know, and we're always being asked to take on more debt. I, I think it's funny. We're treated like these deadbeats. I'm always getting this mail for, you know, you've been pre-approved for something or other to get me into more debt. But, um, uh, but you're absolutely right. The fact that that's harder to do is um, something that impacts Black people uh, to a greater extent. Uh, medical debt. I mean, the, the fact that there is such a thing that even yeah. private health insurance are not covered uh, for all their needs should they have a catastrophic illness. So, um, so yes, the, the Democrats have played a role in this as much as the Republicans. Um, and it's this, um, I, I say politics in this country is like professional wrestling. They're fake villains <laughs> and fake heroes. There aren't any heroes. They're all villains. They get to point at each other. Um, Democrats get to point at uh, Republicans um, and say they're the evil ones. Um, but uh, uh, at the end of the day, uh, how much more do we get? Or Biden does a little bit and they start propagandizing on his behalf. He's transformational. Yep. He's cutting child poverty in half. No. Uh, it was said that if there was an increase in the minimum wage, some of these proposals might cut child poverty in half. Well, there ha is no increase in the minimum wage. It's still just $7.25. And a lot of these stimulus proposals are temporary. So it, they need to just stop. It's, it's a lie to say that um, yeah. uh, he's cut child poverty in half. It's just not true. Absolutely. And one thing as a left... Yeah, Go ahead, RJ. Yeah, I think this is a great continuation to actually talk about the Biden propaganda. And I actually read your article on the Black Agenda Report, mm -hmm. and I think it was a pretty uh, good one. It was It's titled Pro-Biden Propaganda. You wrote it mm -hmm. in January 27th of 2021. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I brought it up is that um, it's a great conversation about not only Biden's pro-propaganda, but really his first 100 days. Most people don't realize his first 100 days ends next Friday. Right. And the reason why I bring that up is because you mentioned in your article that Biden will be like his old boss, Obama, not lesser evil, but a more effective one. So I guess like my question to you would be is how do we fight back against the terrible pro-Biden propaganda by the media? And how do we convince liberal blacks and whites that Biden breaking campaign promises and doing the same things as Trump isn't a good thing? Because even if you have arguments in good faith, the, due to the propaganda being so heavy, it's kind of hard for it to come through. So what is your advice for that? Uh, well, you know, it's one of the ways we do this is by building independent media, which is why we're all here right now. So that Absolutely. people have um, options and aren't just dependent upon the corporate media. Um, and I, we just have to tell people the truth. And I think a lot of people do know it. Um, that you just have to tell people, wait a second, this, you know, $1,400. First of all, they told you it was 2000 and, uh, that's not enough. There should be during the pandemic and this, the job, the losses of jobs and so forth, it should be an ongoing support system that they have in, uh, uh, in many other countries, the so-called advanced nations that the U S is always comparing itself to. Uh, people are being supported throughout this crisis. They don't get, you know, what was it, $1,200 last year, then it was $600 at the end of the year. We were told it's $2,000. They were like, oh, we meant $2,000 minus the 600 
So it's $1,400. That's nothing. That's if you're lucky to have cheap rent, that's pays your rent once. Um, uh, you know, the, there is an increase in unemployment. So those are, uh, are good things, but I, let's just be factual. Um, unfortunately, some, there are so many people who uh, rely on the corporate media as their source of information. So when they are told these things, they just don't have any idea of, um, of what's really true. But uh, we have to do our best and uh, just just be factual. It's di it is difficult though because people are uh, emotionally tied. Um, um, Americans are you know are into this liking politicians and you know I like this one but I don't like that one. Not you know what have you done for me lately? Which is the way to judge them. Uh, so it's hard and especially after Trump. You know uh, Trump was such a polarizing figure. Um, he wasn't hated by everybody. He got enough votes to squeak through in the electoral college, lest we forget, even though he lost the popular vote. And he got 10 million more votes in 2020. But uh, people were, he was also hated. And I, I remember uh, the day that uh, it was announced Biden had enough electoral votes to win. I remember that Saturday. He, people here in New York, and I believe all over the country, but People literally ran out into the streets and, and partied. It was a beautiful day here, so it was a perfect day to be outside in celebration, um, just to celebrate that Trump was gone. And um, he was such a, you know, a vile persona. It wasn't just his policies, just as a person. He was such a hateful individual. He didn't cover it up the way other presidents do with, you know, charm and finesse and they're professional politicians and they know what to say and what not to say. No, Trump just, he was just out there with this racism. Um, and uh, uh, so everybody looks, can look better in comparison, but we, we should be more discerning and ex frankly expect more from ourselves rather than to say that not Trump should be the new, um, uh, the new way of, discerning and determining what we should and shouldn't have. Right. And just to continue on in this conversation, uh, one thing that bothers me about today's politics is the influx of culture war. You know, the, the right, you know, they always do like the Pepe Le Pew, you know, the cancel culture stuff, you know, all of it's centered around Donald Trump. Um, they, you know, the potato head, how I went from Mr. Potato Head to just potato head. And then you got, you know, liberals and stuff fawning over Kamala, like the tweets of them walking every day. Yeah. And really, it's all just a distraction in reality, because yes. while they're doing that, the establishment's finding ways to keep funding the more billionaires. And I guess my question to you is, like, how does culture war itself really affect our politics? And what can we do to actually stop it so we can really talk about the more important issues that affects everyday Americans? Well, it's, it's actually not new. Uh, I, I first remember the term culture war when Reagan became president and he appealed directly to white conservatives, to religious conservatives in particular. And it was all about school prayer and abortion and gay rights and all, all of those things. Many of those things are now settled. Abortion is still legal. Gay people can get married. Um, all, a lot of those things have changed. 
So now it's all about perception. It's never, by the way, about the fundamental issues that um, impact people's lives. Low wage work, that hasn't changed. Um, the, uh, um, the fact that so many people in this country are struggling, half of all Americans are low income workers. I mean, half. Uh, the fact that, you know, as we talked about, people go broke because they get sick. None of these issues are touched by either party. And that means things that are um, hot button issues that people have an emotional reaction to. And those are the ones given attention, of course, because, you, you know, they don't want to give attention to the things that matter because then you'd have to have a different system. So, um, you know, cancel culture is, I, I remember some, I saw, I, I think it was a tweet today about uh, uh, during the, when the Iraq war started, I, you guys are younger than me, so I don't know if you remember this, when the uh, singers, the Dixie Chicks criticized Bush and the right wing lost it. They said, don't go buy their records, don't go to their concerts, they ought to die. And I was like, wait a minute, you're the same people talking about cancel culture now. So, you know, they believe in canceling people too, when it's uh, convenient for them. But uh, we have the same system where the rich are getting richer and richer and richer. Income inequality is at an all time high. Uh, the jo any jobs growth, it's um, low wage work, it's gig work. It's um, all, all sorts of things that don't, uh, that don't help people. We still have a budget, 60% of the budget of, the, of discretionary spending is defense spending. Uh, and it's literally why we cannot have nice things. You can't have the military eating up 60% of the budget and have uh, infrastructure improvement and have a a healthcare system that takes care of everyone, have good uh, schools. You can't have any of those things. So uh, I think um, the culture wars uh, are, are themselves are a huge distraction from uh, the things that really matter to people. Mass incarceration. Does anybody talk about mass incarceration anymore? Or um, uh, uh, about uh, imperialism, that it's just accepted that the U.S. will spend millions of dollars to overthrow a government. Or I, I saw, um, you know, the United States was supposed to be out of Afghanistan by now. Uh, was Trump was trying to make good on one promise, something people would like for these forever wars to end. But um, the War Party, which is bipartisan, didn't want him. Uh, didn't want him to do it. So at any rate. I saw this stories about contracts that the Defense Department has. And if the U.S. leaves Afghanistan, uh, they'll be on the hook for millions of dollars. Now, if somebody like me said they make wars in order to help the military industrial con uh, um, uh, complex, then I would be laughed out of the room. I would be smeared as a conspiracy theory theorist. But there it was on the AP or CNN or some reputable news website that uh, if if the U.S. leaves Afghanistan, they'll be on the hook for all this money. So, but that's something that isn't uh, talked about instead of, um, uh, you know, culture wars and, you know, who and me too and all, all kinds of things that don't impact people uh, the way the, the bigger issues do. That's why they always and redirect me, the cancel culture 
Uh, sorry, let me chime in here, RJ. You go. I'll, I'll pass it right to you. Uh, they all go to cancel culture because you you mentioned how they had a contract in Afghanistan. Now they was openly announcing how they got to stay in uh, for that, and that kind of shows why they didn't like Trump because Trump will mess around and say the obvious stuff out loud every once in a while. And we actually seen Kamala Harris make the same kind of amateur mistake when she said, "Well, there was wars fought over oil. Now they're gonna be fought over water." And then anyone who's a leftist, we heard her say that, and we was like, "So you just admit that you fought." war for oil so so these are the kind of things that they are they even acknowledge sometimes and i just want to chime in i'll bring rj right back into this i want to bring this up because you brought up the military spending because breaking today uh biden is going to propose um a 753 billion pentagon, uh, pentagon budget and increase a significant increase from last year's budget what's your i just want to get your thoughts on that and we can talk back to rj well, yeah, you know, when uh, it was so funny when uh, Trump, uh, uh, the uh, Republicans lost the midterm elections and Democrats got control of the House a couple of years ago, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats always gave Trump everything he wanted in defense spending, actually sometimes more than he asked for, a space yeah. force. I mean, did we need a new branch of the military, but it's about militarizing space, which is very dangerous. But Nancy Pelosi wasn't against it. Um, uh, Democrats would go along. And, you know, the opposition, some of the establishment opposition to Trump is occasionally he would say something that yeah. most people want. People don't see, if you ask the average person, should the United States be in Afghanistan uh, for 20 years? And the answer is no. That's why they started Russiagate. They did not trust him to stick with the establishment uh, narratives on foreign uh, policy, and I'm I'm not praising Trump uh, uh, particularly, but I'm just pointing out when he talked about something that most people uh, of various political stripes wanted, it was squelched, and it was squelched in favor of these people. The uh, you know we're always told we have a democracy; it's an oligarchy; it's a it's uh, I can't think of the other words I'm thinking of. But at any rate, uh, we have these uh, military industrial complex, very rich people. All of them determine what it is that we do and don't get. Right. I do want to con uh, continue, too, with um, I do want your, want your opinion on this, because you did mention prior a lot of these uh, quote-unquote culture war used as a distraction to these uh, evil policies that the establishment is putting out that is harmful against regular Americans. Like, I do want your opinion on, like, the state of Georgia, for instance. Like, the state of Georgia, mm -hmm. the governor signed into a law which we call on mainstream media, like, the Jim 2.0. You know, a lot of these different corporations like Coca-Cola, Delta are speaking out against it because they realize, hey, our potential bottom line could be hurt if we don't actually speak up on this. And what's very interesting to me is it also too, because the MLB, they pulled up the All-Star uh, game mm -hmm. in the All-Star Atlanta well because of the results of these uh, Jim Crow 2.0 policies. And what surprised me is how far, I, and I shouldn't be surprised because it's the right wing, but what surprised me initially was how far the right was going to go to try to get what they want, especially as an establishment figure. Like, for instance, they wanted to strip, uh, They what they wanted to do is, like, there's antitrust laws exemptions for certain companies and for certain industries. Mm -hmm. so, like, for the MLB, what the right wing wanted to do is they wanted to get rid 
of that antitrust exemption and file antitrust against MLB just for moving the All-Star game out of the state of Georgia of the result of their election laws. So what is your opinion on this about the ability for the right to create, up, to create out of these controversies with enacting type of discriminatory policies? Well, you know, the, you know, corporate America, they, they, uh, they want to protect the brand. So this is a, they have a PR problem when uh, uh, something like this happens, when uh, uh, Georgia is enacting these, uh, these laws to uh, restrict access to voting. And, um, uh, but I want to talk about the, the laws themselves. You know, the worst thing about this, the, these, uh, this Georgia bill that changes um, uh, uh, access to voting is something that hasn't been talked about much. This new law takes um, elections, uh, jurisdiction over elections, away from the Secretary of State and gives it to the legislature. Now, uh, you may remember back in January, a couple of days before the Capitol riot, uh, uh, Trump had a phone call with the Georgia Secretary of State trying to overturn the election. He And the Secretary of State, to his credit, or somebody who worked for him, um, uh, leaked the recording. And Trump was saying, I need 11,000 more votes. And there was fraud. And, um, and the Secretary of State, to you know, said no. Uh, he would have been in a lot of legal trouble had he gone along with Trump. Um, and uh, this new law takes the power uh, to determine these things away from that office and gives it to the legislature. So uh, the Republican-controlled legislature conceivably could decide to overturn an election because the loser asked them to. So that's the worst thing about this law. And you've heard about the, you know, you can't give people water if they're waiting online, and which is ridiculous, but that's not the worst thing. Um, and uh, it is important because, you know, if you impact just a little bit who can vote, you can change the course of an election. Hillary Clinton lost Michigan by just 10,000 votes in 2016 out of millions of votes cast. And Trump wins, it's winner take all, and he squeaks through in the electoral college as an example. He lost Georgia, as he said himself, by just 11,000 votes. That is very, very close. So if you shorten the number of days uh, of early voting, if you shorten the number of hours in, on election day, if you do voter ID anything, that um, can impact the ability of people to vote and knowing that black people uh, vote 90% of the time for Democrats and all of these things are directed at black people, you can change the course of an election. So uh, this is what they've been doing. Republicans have been doing this actually for the last 20 years. Um, so it is very important, uh, but these corporations are not to be trusted before there was a, a lot of publicity. They were like, well, this, this law is okay with us. They were trying to take the path of least resistance until um, it was pointed out how dangerous this is. Then they changed their minds. Then they were attacked. But that's, that's kind of the you know, professional wrestling aspect um, of these issues. We can't look to corporate corporations to protect our legal rights. But there's something else about Atlanta someone pointed out to me. I saw this um, uh, on Twitter last week. There's a baseball team, Major League Baseball in Atlanta, 
because they promised to desegregate the stadium. The Braves were the Milwaukee Braves. And Hank Aaron was one of the players who, when this team moved from Milwaukee to Atlanta, and he said he didn't want to play in a uh, segregated stadium. Other people agreed. And the city promised that uh, the stadium would be desegregated. Uh, so that is um, an example of uh, uh, big business making a political decision. So the people who try to claim that this is something new don't know what they're talking about. But that's what they do all the time. Mitch McConnell, I thought it was hilarious. At first he was like, uh, business should stay out of politics. Then he had to backtrack, of course, because what does he do? What do other powerful senators do? All they do is serve business interests all the time. And, you know, but um, but yeah, that's my my take on it. Yeah. And one thing I always want to lay out and, and yeah, I, I think only that's, uh, pretty interesting. To... Go ahead, Audrey. Oh, go, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Nick. I think there's a lag here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I guess what I was, what's surprising to me, especially now, is that um, especially the black community, especially with liberals overall, it's like an increased movement towards electoralism in general and putting their faith in Biden to actually deliver results. And I think it's partly because of they, they're jealous of the destruction that really the Republicans are able to do and how much power they have over Congress. And they feel that, hey, maybe if we vote Democrat, maybe they could have that same energy for when they get the power sometime. And we've proven that to be kind of false, especially now. And I was reading in your article, it says that the, um, that same article I mentioned before, it says the size of relief give Biden an opportunity to get away with just about anything he wants. And you were kind of describing there that people were putting really their faith in Biden and they were getting, they were really getting screwed. Yeah. And um, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, we put too much faith in uh, electoral politics in general. Yes. You know, we get the most change when we, the people, speak up. Uh, everybody wants to talk about the civil rights movement as this high watermark of uh, popular activism. Yes. But it succeeded because people made demands. And they continued to make, the, they made demands knowing politicians did not want to meet them. They knew people, uh, politicians didn't want to do the things they were demanding, but they didn't care and they kept demanding it anyway. So there's a Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act because of, of uh, that determination uh, to make a demand without, uh, without compromise. So that's what we need to remember. It's not the politicians who do for us. It's the people who make the demands and the politician and create a crisis that politicians have to respond to. Uh, yep. That is what we should keep in mind. Absolutely, that's well said. So I love that you brought the civil rights movement and how we able to affect change. And I wrote a piece about uh, the movement for defund the police. And this is why it's very important to discuss and talk to black leftists and people of color who are more than willing to actually put the work in and fight for this. Because I was very frustrated with a lot of people who consider themselves white allies who was being critical of the defund the police movement because they were saying, oh, we, I, I, I agree that the police is, is a problem, but we can't hurt the Democrats. They're going to hurt yeah. the Democrats' electability. So I always make the point that when you look at the bus sit-ins, you look at Martin Luther King Jr. approval rating, these social movements never are popular when they first start out. 
We yeah. whether it's the civil rights movement, whether the uh, fight for gay rights, women's suffrage. Historically, there's never been a movement that started out popular. You got to put in the work and then change public perception. That's why I love what you said earlier, Marjorie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can't be, you know, the whole argument of defunding the police is problematic uh, for some reasons, but that shouldn't be the reason to be against it. Uh, you know, there's lots of uh, budgetary sleight of hand. I mean, that's what happened here in New York City where I live. They just switched... Um, uh, 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 salary lines from uh, school security guards. They were paid by the NYPD and they just switched them to the Department of Education and they said, see, we cut the police budget. Well, <laughs> no, you didn't. You just switched one, something from here to there. Nothing about policing changed. Nothing. So, uh, and the a lot of the resources that go into policing could be better spent uh, on behalf of the people. So people have to be careful. That's my, my questions about defunding the police are along those lines. And there are some cities that have allegedly defunded their police department and then hire private cops. So uh, those are the things people need to worry about, not the fact that, uh, you know, the Democrats lose for any number of reasons, mostly yeah. because they don't stand up for the things people want. Um, and then say, well, you know, it was defund the police. That's why we lost those seats. That is not something uh, we should um, give any any credence to. Absolutely, absolutely. And also wanted to mention as well, uh, they always put our issues on the back burner in terms of electability. That's why I think it's important for us to never actually focus on what the party and what makes them electable. We need to focus on what's best for our communities. And I want to just uh, bring up one more thing. I'll toss it back to RJ, because um, we were talking about the Georgia uh, uh, voting bill, and that's a horrific piece of legislation. And what I try to do is break uh, Black Americans away from the two-party duopoly. And it's very easy to look at the Republican Party and say, okay, they're the anti-voting rights party while the Democratic Party are pro-voting rights party. The one thing I want to let anyone know, this is, I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question because I want to dig into this. I want to see what the numbers are on this as well. But you can only imagine, I always ask, can you imagine how many black men, African-Americans lost their voting rights because of the policies that Joe Biden implemented throughout the course of his career? So when you look at the actual crimes of voting rights, can you imagine the position the African-American community could be in if you had a lot of these people that had their voting rights stripped was able to vote? So that's always I want people to consider. Yes, the Georgia voting rights bill is horrific, but you got to look at the overall package and people like Joe Biden, they was largely responsible for stripping people's voting rights away through the policies they implemented. Now I'll toss it back over to you, RJ. Yeah, we had a comment here that said basically, you know, Biden didn't talk to Ice Cube. And that's actually interesting because yeah. here I actually wanted your opinion on Ice Cube because as some some people may not know this, but I think Ice Cube before the election, he had, he came up with his uh, plan for black America. And in that inside that plan, it said overall, they want black opportunity and representation, finance reform, judicial public policy reform, like banning private uh, prisons, um, expanding the 13th Amendment to abolish slavery in any form. Uh, police reform, reparations, uh, eliminating Confederate statues. I actually wanted your opinion on his plan overall, how it may differ from other plans for Black for Black America, and how do you feel his receptance was into bringing it out in the, out in the open? 
because he, he received a lot of initial criticism, not just from mainstream media, but even some from black people too. So what is your opinion on, on all those three questions? Well, he, you know, I, I'm, it's, I, I'm always, uh, I find it problematic when celebrities are presented as political leadership. I, I always get very nervous about that. I, you know, I don't know what Ice Cube's politics are in general. I mean, some of the things he mentioned are things that um, I, I, we absolutely need to get rid of the 13th Amendment. Uh, we have to do something about mass incarceration, about uh, uh, people losing their voting rights in some states forever if they're ever convicted of a felony. That's how they stole Florida from Al Gore in 2000. Yep. Uh, they took people off the rolls, claimed they were felons, which they weren't at all, but Florida was one of those states that um, uh, where people lost their voting rights for the rest of their lives. So yes, we have to talk about this. Now, I think Ice Cube made a mistake in also reaching out to Trump too. That was you know, a non-starter. But yeah. um, uh, so I think we, you know, even as we lose our dependence on the political parties, we have to be careful who uh, we allow the messengers to be. It, do it doesn't bother me that Biden didn't speak to Ice Cube. It bothered me that he didn't speak to all of us. And that the end that so many of us have capitulated so completely that we feel so disempowered that we believe we can never get the things that we want and that if we advocate for them that we're putting a Republican in office. So, you know, and especially with Trump, it's like, don't be a spoiler. Don't, you know, this is the best you can get. Don't ask for anything more. Um, that is the big problem. And you see it exemplified with uh, someone uh, uh, like Ice Cube and uh, the discussion about his proposals. Did I answer all your questions? Sorry, I know it was a two or three part. Oh, yeah, you answered <laughs> answer the questions. I just, me, me personally, my personal opinion, you know, I do believe too that he was trying to, you know, do the best mm -hmm. he could. Like he felt, okay, this is the part. He, he said in, in multiple interviews too, I'm just going to go to whatever party's in power, wherever, to try to get black shoes to go through. And I do think it's respectful that he reached to both parties because if he reached the Democrats alone with Republicans uh, taking over everything, that'll be immediately slandered. And if he just went to Republicans, then he'd be killed by the black community. So I feel like he was put really in a lose-lose situation by himself. But I do agree with you saying that celebrities in general, it's kind of hard to have them introduced into this type of politics because it can get a little dicey. So that's kind yeah. of my... I, I also think he made a good point about making demands. You can't make a demand after election day uh, instead right. of uh, just accepting the Democratic Party establishment wants Joe Biden and that's it. And you can't say anything or ask a question or make a demand. That's ridiculous. Um, instead of being brave, instead of being so fearful, instead of saying, hold up, I'm not endorsing Joe Biden until he addresses these issues of concern to our community. That should have been uh, the response instead of, okay, the Democrats have picked him, that's it, that's our only choice, we have to just go along and be quiet. Um, so he had a point about making demands in exchange for political support. That's what we ought to, to do. Uh, but nature abhors a vacuum, and that's why a celebrity can step into the spotlight, because the, uh, as we call at Black Agenda Report, as we uh, call them, the black political class, the black misleaders 
are completely in the pocket of the Democratic Party and their interests and do not represent uh, the people at all. Yeah, I love that you brought that point, how they're in the pocket of the Democratic Party, because I find this to be one of the biggest problems with the Black community and the reason why we can't. Um, I always like to use the term, people get upset when I use it, but even though the right said it, it's pretty accurate. We can't get out the plantation. Uh, because if you look at the income inequality level back in the civil rights era, compared to it is now, racial income inequality is worse right now than was at the height of the, of the Jim Crow and civil rights era. So how is that? How is that? That's because we have a lot of black oligarchs who work within the Democratic Party who abandon our black revolutionary roots of embracing socialism and embrace black capitalism. So we have these black leaders who team up with these black celebrities like Jay-Z, like Beyonce, these people who pretend that the, uh, the Democratic Party is the party for black people. I think that's a big problem with the issues that we face. Yeah, you know, a lot has happened in the last 50 years. You know, neoliberalism, which is, uh, what's a way to describe it? It's corporatism winning the day, um, finance capital uh, ruling our country. We live under billionaire rule, globalization, yep. loss of jobs going overseas. All of these things um, have happened in the last 50 years, which, of course, drove politics to the right further. So now we have a far right party and a center right party. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, the Democrats live off this reputation from FDR and LBJ about how much they did for the people. But it's been decades since they really did anything transformative to help uh, to help the people. Uh, yeah. And uh, so that's something that we have to remember. And anyway, so that's the cause of uh, these worsening conditions that you refer to. But I don't think the system can be reformed. I think yeah. I think we have to be revolutionary in yes, our about politics and stop thinking that if we put this person in, it's going to make a difference. This person is our going to be our savior, or even acknowledging that you know. Joe Biden isn't our savior, but the Republicans are so horrible, we have to put up with anything from the Democrats. That's just deadly. It is not true. We can impact the system. We should impact the system. And we shouldn't think that if we speak up that we're harming ourselves. We can only help ourselves by speaking up. Right. I love how you said that we need to be revolutionary. We cannot reform the system. Because one of the reasons why we have a massive shift of wealth, a lot of people don't tie all these issues together. And in order for us to actually truly reach liberation, we have to get rid of the casserial system. Because one of the reasons why income racial inequality got worse is because when you look at the legal practices that the police had used, like uh, civil asset forfeiture, for example, yep. and all the fines and fees that we had to pay because we are targeted because of broken windows policing. So I tie those issues together, economic and uh, criminal justice, because those are literally tied. Because what happens to the money that's still taken by us? Because if you look at the people who are mostly impacted by civil asset forfeiture, it's largely African-Americans, then you have Latinos and you have Native Americans. That money is transferred to the white community. These white police officers who uh, police districts where they're not from. So that's why I think it's very important to tie those issues together. And that's why I love that you said that the system can't be reformed because if you think you're going to improve the financial system of the working class Black Americans without touching the casserial state, you are missing one big giant part of the puzzle. Yeah, there are two million people. You know, every time the United States talks about human rights somewhere else in the world, we've got to remember the United States has more people in prison than any other country. 
any other country. Two more than two million people incarcerated. Half of those people are black. Uh, I I read that. Uh, I think we've said at Black Agenda Report that 25% of the incarcerated people on the planet are Black Americans. Uh, wow. This was uh, uh, mass incarceration ramped up as soon as the civil rights movement was over. It's like, well, if we can't have Jim Crow, if we can't have civil yes. segregation, if we can't, if uh, uh, discrimination can't be legal, we got to have to find some way, other way to control this population. And they did it through um, uh, the uh, wars on drugs, wars on everything, to just to criminalize everything and put black people um, in jail and to make prisons profit making. So people are fined while they're in prison. People leave yeah. in debt. Um, it's just, it's a, it's a very cruel system we have and it's something that has to be kept in mind when they try to, you know, and it's almost always a lie when they're telling you about human rights abuses someplace else in the world. Yes. So Joe Biden and others have played a huge part in, um, in uh, making this happen. And uh, this is, uh, this has to be um, uh, uh, a part of any demands that we make that uh, uh, people have to be let out of jail. Absolutely. I, I just want one more thing to chime in and I'll pass it right back over to RJ because I just want people to end on this talk because I'm kind of obsessed with the concept of uh, police abolition and defund the police. And one thing that is really popular is uh, legalizing marijuana. And this is just for the critics of defund the police. If you are supportive of legalizing marijuana and ending the war on drugs, you must support defund the police because if you support one without supporting the other, you are being intellectually inconsistent. Because one of the reasons why the police budgets blew up, because they used to spend around the same amount of money on municipal budgets before the Reagan era, then the uh, war on drugs ramped up, and then police spending exploded as a result of that. So if you are for legalizing marijuana and ending the drug war, but if you are not for defunding the police, then where do you want that money to go? That's the question I have for you. So you, I just ask people to get serious about this issue and uh, be intellectually consistent. Uh, you're, you're right. You know, here in New York, they just passed the budget um, and uh, there is a new provision which legalizes um, recreational marijuana. And there is money from the state. And of course, the state will get its cut if it's legal to sell weed. Of course, it's going to be taxed. So it's money for the state. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. And I, I have to look into it more since it's very new. There's supposed to be money to go to communities most impacted by marijuana arrests. I, I, and I don't know what that's going to yeah. mean exactly. So um, I can't be on board with it yet till I uh, yeah. find out more, um, more about it. But yeah, you can't just have give the state more money to, you know, to police you, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, and have the police be a modern day slave patrol and not change that at all. So yes, that's, that's a good point. Right. And I want your opinion on this because our, our report came out really uh, this week when Kamala was asked about, you know, Bi one of Biden's campaign promises was to decriminalize uh, marijuana. Right. And the problem with you know, Kamala is, is that the excuse as to why they couldn't really do it is, well, we're kind of busy right now, which is to me one of the biggest like excuses <laughs> and slap in the faces. 
And I guess this was a continuation of uh, previous questions I had is, asked was, how do we not, how do we convince really the, uh, the Biden administration to pass some of these uh, policies into law that he promised, not just electorally, but create a, a ground, a groundswell movement that's a grassroots led to actually get them done? Because I'm not necessarily sure we could do it electorally. So what, what's your opinion on that? Well, we have to, you know, it's a funny thing about the uh, Capitol riot, insurrection, coup attempt, whatever you want to call it on January 6th. I have to say, I was impressed with the fact that Trump's people were willing to come out for him. Now, I'm not suggesting we do the same thing, but um, uh, progressives need to um, directly make these demands on Biden. But, you know, if you see him as your friend and your ally, you're less likely to oppose him or to make any demands on him. That's the kind of thing that we should be doing. We should be heading to Washington as we speak with all of these demands. And we need to tell these people, we're not voting for you anymore. These phony progressives, they're on Twitter uh, talking about, uh, you know, they want to end inequality. They want to do this. They Well, what, what did you do? I mean, when the, the stimulus bill was being negotiated, we keep being told that this one Democratic senator, Joe Manchin, said no, and it's such a thin margin, and you got to do whatever he says. Well, where are the progressives? Why don't they say exactly. no? We're not voting for anything unless it includes a minimum wage increase, for example. Um, but they don't hear from us. And so they're allowed to get away with being phony. And yeah. uh, But I, I think there's nothing like mass action to get their attention. People have talked about a general strike. Um, but it has to be something like that, something significant, uh, like, um, you know, what we saw last summer after George Floyd was killed and there were millions, I'm not exaggerating the number of people all across the country um, who were uh, joined in this protest. Um, and there's some lessons to learn about, you know, what should and should not have happened. Uh, but uh, I, it gives you an an inkling of how much discontent there is. I think the election took a lot of that energy. There was so much focus on getting rid of Trump. It was difficult to, uh, to sustain it. But uh, that's the kind of thing we have to do. If, you know, the Trumpers can go to Washington and protest and we can't, come on. Uh, that's right. what you have to do. But you have to stop thinking of these people, these politicians as being your friends and allies. Because unless you break that, um, you know, you're on a fool's errand if you think that's going to happen. Absolutely. And uh, I thought it's it funny that you brought up uh, how you had Trump people that were willing to ride or die for him. I remember I had a lot of people that upset me. I mean, a lot of people like what I said as well, but there are a lot of people that was mad uh, when January 6th ha happened while we're joking around, uh, the emphasis on joking. While well, saying it seems, it seems like the right wing was down for a revolution, while the progressive left wasn't. <laughs> and uh, once again, they're joking, but there's some truth in there. Uh, there's they didn't really stand for anything at all, so I don't give them any credit. But this is the difference between our base and how we've been represented, and how the worst of the worst in society is being represented. Because there was a story that just came out not too long ago, how you have progressive politicians. And I love how you brought up Margaret, uh, Margaret that uh, people shouldn't try to be friends with Joe Biden, but you have progressive leaders and people uh, that on the left in Washington, on the inside, 
who are starting to fall in love with the Biden administration because they're getting retweeted a lot. <laughs> and and they are literally giving them pats on the shoulder. They're saying nice things to them. And that's all it takes, apparently, to win their loyalty and trust. And so we can't even push them to the left, let alone Joe Biden. So I think that's why we got to be focused on criticizing them so we can have someone that could represent us. Right, Murray? Yes, absolutely. Pushing, pushing everybody all the time at every opportunity. Um, we can't just be chumps who are happy with, you know, uh, this propaganda in, in favor of Biden. The, you know, the, the I mean, it's just ridiculous that they're always, I don't know if they're still doing it, but for a while, they're always having pictures of Kamala Harris walking down a hallway or reading a <laughs> pack of briefs. Or, and I was like, and so what? Um, or, you know, Joe Biden, you know, walking down the hall in slow motion, that was supposed to impress you, Any anything, everything. Um, and we, we can't fall for that. And we can't be afraid to say, no, that's not good enough. You haven't addressed the needs of the people. Um, and, you know, like Medicare for all, he keeps saying, I'd veto it. I'd veto it. Something that everybody wants. Most Democrats want it. Even a, a small majority of Republicans want it. And it's something that uh, the people need, but it's been taken off the table. And it's taken off the table uh, mostly because they're not feeling uh, they're not feeling the heat. I guess like just to expand upon that, a lot of my frustration with really the Congressive Progressive Caucus in general is, is that they don't understand how much power they have right now, specifically with the House having a slim majority. You know, you have Bernie with the split Senate, they could actually use their power and actually leverage for something. And what's surprising is even when we give good faith advice to the progressives about, hey, this is what you could potentially do to get progressive policies passed with this specific opportunity. And we receive either uh, excuses, um, capitulation, or if you're very aggressive with your approach, you're you're considered a you know bad faith actor or you're being a, a divisive. Um, so what do you think is the correct strategy to uh, convince progressives to actually be more aggressive in advocating for those policies and to get wins from the establishment? Well, uh, I they know. They know how much power they have, but they're afraid. I think these are people who just are not fighters. Uh, I think if, if it were easy, excuse me, to talk about the things we've mentioned, they would do it. But it's not easy because, first of all, they have to fight their own party. And that's, excuse me, something a lot of people don't want to talk about. Nancy Pelosi doesn't want Medicare for all. Nancy Pelosi doesn't care about a minimum. You know, she's worth, a, she and her husband are, are worth $100 million. And then the fact that um, uh, this very wealthy person is the House Speaker tells you everything you need to know about the Democratic Party and its politics. But we have people who aren't fighters. And um, they have marketed themselves as being progressives when they're, if you just scratch the surface a little bit, you see that they are not. Um, yep. <laughs> so we have, so they know, they know the power they can, if they acted like Joe Manchin. If, if five or six progressives said, um, we're not voting for Nancy Pelosi as speaker, the, um, you know, Medicare for all um, uh, campaign. Um, then it, it could have happened if they said, we're not voting for this stimulus plan unless we get some of the things we want. But you would have to have people who were revolutionary, 
who weren't afraid of the leadership, who were willing to lose their seat two years from now because they know what happens. The, yeah. You know, these big money Democrats will uh, make put somebody else in their in their seat, make sure somebody else gets a lot of money and can take their seat. So you would have to have people who were that brave, who were that committed. But we have a lot of milk toast people, and they're just not serious about change. They would really have to be ready to do battle with their own party, um, which can give them goodies and give them chairmanships and you know all kind make their life uh, happy or miserable. Um, and that's who we have. We have people who take the path of least resistance, and that means they're not going to stand up for us. You want to know the problem? Right. The problem, they make $170,000 per year. And that doesn't include taxpayer-funded uh, uh, conveniences that I think adds to your overall wealth. And this is, I always want to bring up the human element of this as well, because I know a lot of people would just want to say, oh, they're just, they sold out and they're corrupt. And a lot of people may get turned out by that rhetoric. And I want to tell you people, there's different levels of corruption. So when I say that the, uh, the squad and the progressive Democrats have been corrupted, I'm not saying they're like Joe Manchin or Donald Trump. I'm talking about it on the basic human level. So when you rub shoulders with people, you've been around these people all, uh, all day long, all the time. They're your, they're your colleagues. And these people didn't get there on accident. These people are very charismatic. They're very likable. Like when, I, like when you meet a politician, they got that something about them. And when and I was playing to people, Margaret, how you have Bernie Sanders who was calling Joe Biden his good friend throughout the course of the election. But I think there's no doubt in my mind that when Biden is really rude when it comes to talking to protesters and working class people who challenge him on the campaign trail, for example. But if Biden is talking to someone he deems to be his peer, like someone else who's a senator, there's no doubt in my mind that Biden's probably a very nice guy to that person, someone who he sees at the same level. So I think they were legitimately convinced. That these people, oh, we are they on our side? Uh, they are retweeting us. They are pretending. They're saying it's a good thing. They said we might give you committee uh, chairs. Hey, I, I met Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi, not she's not too bad. I mean, she was very nice to me. So this is the human corruption level that happens to everyone. You get to know people, and you less want to challenge them. That and the fact that you're comfortable and you make one hundred seventy thousand dollars a year. You got great benefits. You got a lot vacation time. So do you really want to be hated by the media and smeared constantly 24-7 when you can just live a comfortable resistance? Existence? That's why I think left-wing movements, well, you can use electoral politics to your benefit when it's available. I don't think we should ever have that as our main weapon because it's too easy to be corrupted. I, I, I laugh at my old beliefs of why well, I used to believe a politician not taking corporate PAC money would mean that they would be willing to challenge the party. I used to believe that. that will, a, a large amount of lefties used to believe this, but now it doesn't even make sense on, in hindsight because we see how there's multiple levels of being corrupted. And that's why we got to find exactly. a lot of different strategies outside electoral politics. Yeah, they, you know, it doesn't do any good for someone to say, I don't take corporate PAC money, but they vote the same way. As exactly. <laughs> who take corporate PAC money. So what's the big difference? Um, you're right. There's all kinds of uh, corruption. I think they, a lot of them want to be a part of the permanent government, uh, yeah. but they're, they're not fighters. They are not committed to change. It's, so if you saw, let's say you were a supporter of Bernie Sanders, who I, I have issues with, but let's just say you were a supporter of Bernie Sanders. And you saw how he was treated in 2016 and again in 2020 and how he took a dive. 
if you were committed to change, you would say to yourself, well, we're not going to get anywhere by going along and calling Joe Biden our friend or, you know, whatever else. I mean, Bernie Sanders, I mean, my God, how stupid. He has said during one of the debates, <laughs> oh, I think he can win. It's like, no. Yeah, oh, my God. Why is anybody going to vote for you if you think the other guy can win? You should have said, no, I think I'm the one who can win. Um, but um, but that's what we're stuck with. And you're right. It is corrupting. The entire system is. And um, we should not be impressed because someone says they didn't take PAC money, but they still don't fight for you. Yeah. So uh, we have a lot of posers. We have a lot of people who talk a good game. They may, you know, in some place in their heart, want these things to happen, but they're not willing to go out on a limb and uh, make these things happen for uh, for the people. So we, you know, the progressives, the squad, the Congressional Black Caucus, the uh, there's another Justice Democrats, all these people. <laughs> you know, who are supposed to be so much better. And, uh, but then you look at what they really do and you look at the fact that none of them are willing to stand up. Um, it tells you what we, what we are up against, that we don't have friends in the political party. We, are, we have to be our own friends and they're not going to do anything different unless they feel forced to, to do so. Right. And since we're on the subject too of Bernie, um... What I felt was really surprising, I watched the uh, interview that uh, Bernie had with Mindy Hassan on MSNBC, and Mindy Hassan basically asked him, you know, Bernie, you have the same power that Joe Manchin has. You know, a lot of mm -hmm. Democrats complain about Joe Manchin being an asshole, basically uh, mm -hmm. filibustering everything, nuking everything in the bill. But Bernie, it's a 50-50 it's a Senate. You have that exact same power. And what really <laughs> broke my heart is that Bernie responded with the same speech any other Democrat would give. And to add to that point even further, uh, prior weeks earlier, there was a political article that came out that establishment wrote that basically said, look, if we get Bernie on our side, all the House progressives would fall in line with us. So what is your opinion on really Bernie, well, I would say unintentionally sheepdogging uh, really the progressives to go along with the establishment line? I mean, you know, does he intend it? Does he not intend it? I think he he wants to have an easier life. Uh, he was vilified when, I mean, it shows you how corrupt, how dirty the Democrats were. Hillary Clinton screwed up the 2016 election and everybody was to blame except her and the establishment wing of the Democratic Party. So the Green Party was blamed. Uh, so Bernie Bernie dropped out in June. She had five months to, he, and he backed her, and he campaigned for her. And so, but her loss was still his fault. And he did not have the guts to go through that again. Um, and I think part of him thinks he can, if he plays ball, he can exact some concessions from them. But I think that's just wishful thinking on his part. It was actually, I'm not a Mehdi Hassan fan, but it was actually a good question. Why can't, why is Joe Manchin the only one saying, I'm not going to vote yes unless I get what I want? The rest of them could do it. Um, they could do it from the left. <clears throat> so, um, you know, we have these people who aren't fighters. They're not, they, you know, just wishful thinking that they can get what they want without having to fight against the people who they know, they know how the system works. Come on, Bernie Sanders wasn't born yesterday. <laughs> he's a congressman, he's been in the Senate for years. He knows the deal. 
but he ultimately doesn't want to be blamed for Biden not getting what he wants. So he has made this calculation to go uh, to go along and the rest of them do the same thing. It's very sad to see. That's why it doesn't make any sense to me, the political move that Bernie Sanders even been making, because you brought up how he lost to Hillary Clinton. He still did an insane amount of campaign events for Hillary Clinton, fought for her about as hard as you can possibly fight for it, considering how the campaign was ran. And then when Joe Biden, he, he dropped out early in this election because he was uh, taking a lot of bad advice from uh, people who was Democratic Party careerists like uh, Pramila Jayapal and Ro Khanna and uh, I think Chuck Roca was another person who was trying to convince him to drop out early. And he listened to those people and he dropped out early. And he was a strong campaign surrogate for Joe Biden for months leading up to the general election. Even now, he apologized for Joe Biden, even though he can attack him on a quite literally a billion different issues, <laughs> including the fact that he lied about health care. I mean, there's just so many. I don't want to get into it all. But so you had him campaign for the last two Democratic nominees. He constantly uh, acts as a buffer who um to decrease the rage of the progressive movement so bernie always act always optimistic like almost in a weird way and that's not by accident he does that in interviews so liberals can point out hey bernie's bernie's happy what's going on right now so why are you upset so bernie sanders played a role of diffusing the anger of the grassroots leftist movement and he also is now a defender of the democrat party i say this because despite all of that they still hate him they still they hate him, hate him. <laughs> they will, you know, you said something earlier about uh, who Biden speaks up to and speaks up for. You know, it's uh, in this now famous uh, fundraiser. He said to a group of, uh, of rich people who, you know, the ones who bundle checks for campaigns, he said, nothing will fundamentally change. Yeah, I promise you that. And I need your help. It was, you know, um, so that was his he said it that came out of his own mouth. Nothing will fundamentally change. When people tell me who they are, I'll listen. Because he not only did he say nothing will fundamentally change, he told an immigration activist who was asking him about deportations under Barack Obama and Joe Biden, he told him to vote for Trump. Now what happened? Now Joe Biden is deporting way more people than Donald Trump at a faster rate. Like he, he deported, I'm, trying, I'm, I'm mad I'm forgetting the stat. But it's like he deported more people in, in his first 100 days uh, coming yes. up than Donald Trump did in a year. I'm, I'm killing myself for not. Yeah. And Obama, Obama is still the deporter in chief. He deported yep. more people than any other president before him. And uh, for all his rhetoric, he Obama deported more people than Trump did. So yep. we we you know we see how you know if you don't know the facts, if you're swept swept up in their image making, and yep. how they market themselves, you can miss these very uh, very important things. So it's not true that, you know, what the Republicans said, Joe Biden told people to come to the border. No, he didn't. It's just the opposite. And, um, you know, kids aren't in cages now. The kids are in plexiglass or something. So and he's not <laughs> separating the kids from the parents. But that's about it. Most of these people are are not going to be given asylum. And it's a uh, complicated issue um, of um uh, immigration itself is complicated. The issue of people just showing up at the border, hoping to get into the country, but it's something that needs to be resolved uh, quickly so we don't have this humanitarian uh, crisis um, that, um, I mean, talk about something that's polarizing in the country. I actually think turning people away is the more popular position. 
a lot of people just don't like the optics of, you know, kids sleeping on the floor. Um, but uh, I, I think more people are, are in favor of uh, turning them back. And by the way, there are people on the Mexican border from all over the world. People managed to get there yeah. from African countries, from Asia, all over the world, hoping to get into the United States. And it requires some thoughtful uh, policy decisions, which we, we aren't getting. But you're absolutely right. Um, a lot of Haitians were, a lot of Haitians, as an example, got to Mexico in hopes of getting into the United States. They, they're sending people back to Haiti, which is in the midst of uh, um, a huge, uh, massive protest against their president, who's a puppet of the United States, who was supposed yeah. to leave office yeah. two months ago. Uh, who stays in office with the help of uh, Haiti's uh, oligarchs and um, and the United States? Uh, people are being shot by armed gangs. All of the things that would ordinarily grant someone asylum, they suddenly, when it comes to Haiti, it it doesn't apply. And, and this is Biden, not Trump. So yeah, I, I got one more thing to add, and I'll toss it right back to RJ because you had even uh, AOC who. And even a lot of liberals who acknowledge the problem where they would talk about these things where they say, yeah, the, the, the border crisis is a result of bad U.S. policy, like U.S. imperialism and the drug war. And it's like you got to support these things. And if you look at Biden throughout the course of his career, he's the architect of the border crisis. I mean, you just brought up uh, Barack Obama, how he was the border in chief and how he's picking up on the same thing and how Donald Trump pretty much telling the Haitian people that. Uh, he he back. He's responsible for the situation in that country going on right now. He telling them they can't get over here. So we have this giant crisis that can be solved by common sense policies. But the problem is the Democrat Party do not support these policies. But I'll toss it over to RJ here. Yeah, I have a. I want actually want to transition more to AOC because there's a lot of like leftist Twitter discourse, which I know is kind of cancerous. But <laughs> I do want your opinion on this. Uh, because a lot of the arguments people make is like, well, people are specifically targeting AOC. And, and I'm like, okay, well, yeah, people are going after AOC, but she's she's the first one to speak out of all the progressives at us back at some of these issues. And this specific topic about AOC I want to bring up to you is, is that AOC, there was an article that came out that showed that AOC was taking, you know, grassroots, grassroots funding, a money, a funding, and then giving it to like corporate Democrats like Elisa Slotkin you know, in hope that, you know, to save the Democratic majority in the House. And so my question is, is how problematic do you believe this is for grassroots organizations? And how do you, and do you actually believe the progressives would get any power from Nancy Pelosi from this? No, and she's trying to be a good, she's trying to be a team player. So she said she wasn't the, the, the D triple C, which is a fundraising arm for congressional Democrats. They're, each member is supposed to raise money for them in addition to raising money from their own campaigns. And then, you know, one of her uh, efforts to appear progressive said she wasn't going to give money to the DCCC. But instead, she gave money to individuals who um, are, in, uh, are expected to be in tight races next year. But a lot of these people, she is... Um, you know, when I said they're fake villains and fake heroes, she's a fake villain for the Republicans. And she's uh, uh, the person um, uh, who they've turned radioactive. Uh, and they use her as a fundraising. Everybody picks a villain to use as their fundraising tool. So Republicans do that with her. 
So some of these Democrats who uh, are in these marginal districts don't want to be connected with her because they're trying to get Republican votes. So not only did she circumvent what she claimed in principle she was going to do, uh, she also got slapped in the face when people were like, oh, no, I'm not connected with AOC. <laughs> I don't want her money. So um, so that's what happened there. As far as uh, her being targeted, well, you know, why not? She, you know, she's all, all of them. All of these phony progressives need to be targeted. She has become, um, when, when she won a couple years ago, when she defeated an incumbent in a primary, uh, which was a, a significant uh, uh, achievement politically. Um, it turns out it didn't mean much. But uh, so she has been this focus of attention. And then people want to defend her because Republicans attack her and, and so forth. But I don't see anything wrong with um, focusing on any particular individual. I just think we need to focus on the systemic issues and not make it seem like this or that yeah. person is a bad person, but she does things that um, elicit this response. So, for example, she had this, uh, uh, I think it was the DSA publication, an interview, and she was, you know, she used this trope about people, anyone who complains about progressives, she said they're in a privileged position, uh, which I, which is just such an insult. And it's such a smear that, uh, if you don't go along with the neoliberal Democrats and their and their corruption, it's because your privileged position and in order to save the more downtrodden people, you should go along with BS. So when she says things like that, she makes herself a target. Uh, so, um, you know, the uh, so uh, she's responsible for a lot of it. But I but I think the, the upshot of all of this is we cannot count on getting the this right person or persons in Congress and then resolving all of our problems unless or until we engage in the mass action that we need to, then there will be another group of phony, there will always be phony progressives for us to continue. Yeah. Yeah. The reason why I see AOC as a target, because you put it perfectly, she brings it upon herself. And the comments that you brought up um, in our interview where she talking about people having privilege for criticizing the Democratic Party and Joe Biden, that those comments speak volumes because I have a new theory that, that I'm developing here over the next few weeks watching AOC and Bernie and the squad. And it breaks my heart to say it because AOC, Bernie and squad, when they first, uh, well, at least when AOC first started, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm seeing these progressive politicians be elected. I'm like, this is great. This is they're going to be the number one enemy of the establishment. That's why I thought that what we were sold. They went from being considered, well, I thought it going to be one of the biggest enemies of the Democratic Party. Now they are the best PR that the Democratic Party could ever ask for. And that's the role that AOC has been given by the party. I, wasn't saying, I don't have any hard evidence of why I say it's just a theory. I think the theory is, my theory, I think AOC just been given the role to clean up the Democratic Party. That's why you see her on all these talk shows. And, I'm, and obviously that makes sense because she's extremely popular. And, and once again, I'm not attacking like evil motive, but you will send the most popular member of your party out to do interviews to clean up your president. That would just, you will expect a party to do. And they told AOC, if you do this, we're going to be more likely to support progressive policies. And just like a rube, <laughs> they fall for it. So when you see AOC say stupid stuff like that, where how people uh, 
criticize Joe Biden and Democrat Party are, are privileged. That's just her. She's working backwards from her conclusion because she has to defend the party. I think that's the role she's been given right now. And that's why I think you're right, Margaret, when you say we have to pressure them because we can't let them be comfortable. You got your little role with the Democrat Party. You make $170,000 a year. You are very comfortable. I'm, we shouldn't make you comfortable. Like, yeah, you got a lot of money, but we got to make you uncomfortable by criticizing you and calling you all the time. And I don't care if you cry that it's violence, but you should not have wrote, uh, ran on one thing and uh, started acting in another way. That's true. She's like, uh, she's the one trying to save the Democrats. And, you know, we can't save them. Um, no progressives, progressives can't save them by, by playing ball with them. So, uh, you know, their, their biggest um, means of, of trying to fool people is Twitter. They all tweet the right things. I, the, today I commented on a uh, uh, guy from New York, new guy, Jamal Bowman. He always, you know, his, his staff, of course, writes a tweet, something about capitalism and inequality. And I just said, I'm sick of these tweets. It's like, you're not going to do anything to tackle capitalism and inequality. You're not. None of them do. So it's a way to market themselves and shield themselves from criticism from those of us who are paying attention, from those of us who see through the veneer and, um, and know what it is they could be uh, doing on our behalf. But that, it's on us. Um, we, you know, it, it doesn't matter if, uh, and he's, you know, Jamal Bowman took out a, an incumbent guy who'd been in for a long time and it was supposed to be a big deal, but you know, nobody's, I hope nobody's falling for that anymore. You still get the same okie doke Democrats and they can give themselves the name, the squad or whatever, but it, it's the same uh, until you get people who are really revolutionary, who are really willing to put their careers on the line who are willing to make themselves a target of fundraising campaigns by the establishment nothing's going to change. We need, no, somebody, we need somebody to get in who says, I know I'm going to be a one-termer and I'm going to do the do my utmost while I'm in there. Yes. Somebody like that. That's what we need. Yeah, don't you get it, though? Those, those tweets, they're really good for engagement, though. Really good for fundraising. <laughs> That's pretty much what the, they're good at doing. And they was pacified because... Uh, you had Joe Biden and his crew will retweet those tweets, and they're like, "Yeah, we we part of the team now." I tossed it back to RJ. They're, and they're demonized by Republicans, and that's not a good enough reason to support yeah. somebody. That's how they, you know, treat you like, like, as you said, like a rube, you know, because oh, the Republicans make AOC a target in their fundraising letters. So what? She yeah, that's a good thing. Anything, it doesn't amount to much. They are, you know, doing their their version of professional wrestling, creating the fake villain. Um, so, yeah. Right. And I do want to talk about black capitalism in general, because there was another controversial tweet. I know I stay Twitter too much, <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, Diddy, had a Diddy had a controversial tweet and he said, uh, we're done letting corporations manipulate our culture into believing incremental progress is acceptable action. If you love us, pay us. And the, the reason why I bring this up is because he himself, as a businessman, as a black <laughs> capitalist, he's been very controversial with not paying his artists and with uh, owning their own masters. So at the same time, he's calling out really the white oligarchs from uh, hoarding all the wealth and not giving black people overall the opportunities. He himself, as a black oligarch, is doing the exact same thing. So can you explain <laughs> us like why in general 
black capitalism is really a cancer for the black community and how we should move more to black socialism. Well, capitalism is the cancer. And, you know, having black people promote it doesn't change the nature of the system. We have to look for to do something new. Socialism is the only salvation for us, for humanity, for the entire planet. Um, is to have uh, socialistic structures. And we have to, I, I think it's important to look at those countries that are demonized, the countries we are always told who are, are evil. Um, they are the ones treating their people the right way. Uh, yeah. When they say Venezuela is terrible, it's both that they wanted to change things. They wanted to help the people or Cuba or Nicaragua or any China. Uh, China is an economic leader that also provides for the needs of its people. China just finished a campaign to lift everybody out of poverty. There were a hundred, and let's forget there are more than a billion people in China, a hundred million rural poor. And over a period of years, they have waged this campaign to end extreme poverty. Who in the United States, Democrats or Republicans, talks about ending poverty? They don't. When they mention it, it's the sneer at the war on poverty, which succeeded in many ways. But to tell you that it didn't work, uh, to tell you uh, why you can't help people, um, we have to look at other countries. And uh, China is a very interesting place where they let people get rich, but not at expense of uh, the great masses of people. Rich people in China have to pay taxes, for example. But they also are committed to raising millions of people out of poverty. So um, rather than, you know, repeat this failed, you know, what can only be called a failure from our point of view, from our experience, and try to say we can make it work for Black people, there, you know, there will always be some Black people who quote unquote make it. But that's not a reason for everybody to uh, support this failure that succeeds by... Um, theft, uh, uh, stealing from people around the world, by mass incarceration, by keeping uh, uh, low wage work, by getting rid of um, the worker itself, this gig economy, which is horrible. Um, that's what capitalism is doing now. And that's not something we want to emulate. Diddy can do what he wants. He's a, he's a celebrity. He's fine. He should do what he likes. I, I you know, don't want to spend too much time thinking about him, but it's not anything for the rest of us to pay attention to. I love that you you discuss other countries and what they actually do for their citizens compared to what we do, because I talk to about this with RJ and I cover foreign policy on my show all the time. And I get really upset when I see, especially, especially people from the black community that repeat US talking points. I remember yeah. North Korea was trending not too long ago, and there was a very viral tweet from a black guy who said, usually I don't like America, but whenever North Korea is talking, he, and then there was a picture of someone being very patriotic, and I'm like, North Korea never called me a nigger. And this is why I love Muhammad Ali, because Muhammad Ali introduced this into mainstream consciousness. Like, they are not the reason why the police are killing black men in no. mass. Russia is not the reason why we are 40% of the homeless population. They're not the reason why we pay 33% of medical debt. They, we need to focus on taking out U.S. imperialism and our failed state before we, re, we redirect our anger towards anyone else. That's why I love that you bring up what other countries do because I think we are the most propagandized country because there are other, they're propaganda in other countries. But at least when they propagandize you, they provide you health care at the same time. I know, <laughs> our I propaganda... <laughs> Our propaganda, our propaganda is, 
just a myth to fool you into thinking you have something when you don't. Cuba yeah. is Cuba has been living with U.S. sanctions for 60 years. They are developing their own COVID vaccine, among other things. Cuba sends doctors around the world when there's an Ebola epidemic, when there's COVID. Uh, the only reason Cuban doctors haven't gone more places is the U.S. Uh, pressures countries into not accepting them. Uh, so, yes, that's what we have to look to. Did North, all these countries that are painted as so evil, the United States killed half a million people uh, when they invaded Iraq. Half a million people. Yeah. North Korea didn't invade Iraq. Russia didn't invade Iraq. China didn't invade Iraq. Uh, the United States now is killing Syrians with sanctions. People are going hungry. They're stealing Syria's oil. Um, China's not doing that. Russia's not doing that. North Korea, yes. Cuba, none of these countries that are demonized. Um, uh, do these terrible things to people around the world like the United States does. So, uh, you know, the last thing we need to do is to uh, praise the United uh, U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, one more thing I want to add in, and I, I get RJ here as well, um, because it's funny. I just had this. I just had this thought. I think I just lost it. God damn it. <laughs> Go ahead, RJ. I think I should lost my train of thought. Yeah. I would, I would, I've been following Danny Haifang a lot. He's your colleague on the Black Agenda Report as well. And a lot of his coverage in 2020 about really the the uh, trade wars with China, um, really the beginning of COVID as well. And right now, with even a couple weeks ago with the rise in anti-China hate because of that and because of Trump's rhetoric, um, that's actually kind of concerning for me. So like, what's your opinion overall about those aspects? Well, as I say, you can't be surprised you can't be surprised when uh, people suddenly think China is the, you know, the great evildoer country and Chinese people are evil after years of the Chinese, Trump calling it the Chinese flu. The, all the COVID is, the, uh, the impact here is all the fault of the United States, all of it. Um, China has had fewer than 5,000 COVID deaths, by the way. Um, so United States made this mess on its own. But um, uh, you, there's always a connection between foreign policy rhetoric and the way people are viewed. So you can't have uh, U.S. officials like from Trump on. Democrats do the same thing. China can't be allowed to, you know, outdo the United States. Why not? Why not? They, you know, their economy is growing. They will soon surpass the U.S. And that's what all of this animosity is about. But if you, um, you know, Democrats and Republicans talking, and I wish we had more time to talk about the lies taught about the Uyghurs and concentration camps, none of it's true. None of it's true. But, um, uh, but as far as the uh, <clears throat> uh, anti-Asian uh, uh, incidents, you know, we don't know how many of them are. I have a, you know, my question is, if a Chinese person gets mugged, is it a hate crime or is it a mugging? I don't know. <coughs> so we have to be careful about these people who try to distract us and make somebody the flavor of the month with all and also not pointing out how the hatred that is arising, the animosity and the negative um, uh, feeling, uh, how much of that is driven by U.S. government policy and by the corporate media uh, parroting uh, what is said. Oh, Nick, you can go ahead. Did you uh, did you catch up on your thought? 
what you want no, to No, go ahead. <laughs> I, forgot, I had something I was saying. I forgot all about it. So go ahead, RJ. <laughs> okay. Um, just to continue with, like, you know, the China thing. I mentioned You mentioned earlier about how China had one of the biggest anti-poverty um, initiatives mm-hmm. for their country. Um, what's, what's significant to me is in America how the Biden administration is pushing this child tax credit, which is temporary, as being, you know, so transformative. You know, yeah. I, I've even heard some like mainstream media commentators from CNN and MSNBC go as far to say, see, Biden is just like Johnson with his uh, yeah. war on poverty, you know. So and also to the Democrats after they pass it, they kind of promised that, you know, hey, well, we could make this permanent. You know, we can keep this going. We need your support. You know, in the next um, bill, if the Senate parliamentarian graces us and lets yeah. us do it, then we'll, <laughs> then we'll actually do it. So what's your opinion on uh, really the child tax credit being amplified to really this uber progressive position than it really is? Well, the the Social Security Act was transformative from FDR. The uh, Medicaid and Medicare were transformative. Uh, Food stamps, now the SNAP program, that was transformative. All of those things were, but Biden's not creating any new program. Uh, And as you point out, it's all temporary. And let's see what these progressives do to make sure that they uh, that these um, uh, temporary enhancements uh, continue past this year. Basically, they want people back at work. They want to act like COVID never happened. And they're trying to hold it together to get um, uh, the economy back to where it was and get people back to work. That's essentially what this is. But if they were going to be transformational, you would expand these benefits greatly. You would um, have a higher federal minimum wage so that, you know, we couldn't have a handful of states getting away with paying people $7.25. Um, uh, that's what we would have. You couldn't have some states not accepting the Medicaid expansion so that uh, there, there are states in this country where uh, childless adults cannot get Medicaid. Um, That's not true here in New York and many other places, but it's true around the country. And that would be transformative. So that's just BS. Um, So that's something that, you know, these these tweeters, that's something they could work on. They could work on uh, making these things permanent as they claim they would like to do. Uh, We could have reform of unemployment insurance, people who never got their unemployment that they earned. I mean, it's not it's not welfare. And I don't want to demonize welfare, but you get unemployment because you worked. Uh, but there are millions of people who, for whom it's a pittance or they don't get enough or the system broke down or any, any number of things. So those, this is a perfect opportunity for these people to make good on their, if they want something to be transformative, then they should make themselves part of the transformation. But as we've discussed, uh, I don't think that's, um, that's going to happen. We need to demand more for our government. And it, it drives me crazy, people who just look at buying plan and assume it's amazing. And it was killing me when I saw progressive politicians pretend that this is the greatest thing ever. I want a UBI. I want health care for all. I want housing for all. These are the things that really reduce poverty instead of these militose neoliberal bullshit policies. I'm sorry. And then if you are a leftist, any socialist, should be looking into how they define poverty and outright rejecting it. So if you are on the left and you report repeating the propaganda about them lifting people out of poverty, you need to check yourself. Because I looked at the poverty rates that they used. I was looking at a household of three. So imagine a single mother or two. 
And then they said they she will be out of poverty if she makes over $21,000 a year. That's true. I am a single man who lives in a relatively cheap area in Kansas City. And I made around that amount of money before and I was struggling. So you telling me that a single mother or two with that amount of money who making that amount of money who may live in New York or some a higher place than standard living, or do you if she made twenty five thousand dollars a year, technically she would be out of poverty. Yep. So we should never take those facts as face value because what you they call out of poverty is bullshit because capitalists they capitalists believe as long as you have a, a, a roof over your head and you're not starving to death, oh you out of poverty. <laughs> Everything's okay. Yep. No, well, it's a joke. Right about these statistics, it's like the unemployment rate. The unemployment rate yeah. only measures people still receiving unemployment. So if your unemployment runs out and you still haven't found a job, unemployment doesn't count you anymore. So that figure is um, is in, yeah. <clears throat> always undercounts the uh, amount of unemployment in the country. Similarly, as you, you make a good point about the how the definition of poverty comes about, um, there are you know these artificial measures if you make X amount, then you're not poor anymore. No, that's just not part of reality. So yes, yeah, so there are poorer people in the country than these statistics show. So that's very important to, um, to remember. And I'm realizing something. I didn't ask how long we're going to go on. I have to, I have to get, I have to get oh, off. Oh, my, my apologies. Shortly. I, didn't, I did not, but I didn't inquire. So how, how much longer are we going to go? I'm loving the conversation. Oh, but... however long you want to. Okay, so let's say ten more Ooh. minutes. Does okay. that work? I, the one, yep, that that works perfect. Okay, and actually, the last question I want to ask you is is about the housing crisis right now, like uh, the housing moratoriums and the rent moratoriums as well, which is a good thing because if especially during this economy, especially during COVID, you don't want people who are you know who lost their job or had like thirty to forty percent decrease in income to be homeless, and right. The reason why I brought that up is because over time, you know, yes, the renters don't pay it, but it's still owned to the actual landlords. And so potentially yeah. you could have a housing bubble happen. And then when all those protections go away, it could burst. And it, you can have a scenario like the financial crisis in 2008 potentially happen again. So what is your opinion on all that and how could we prevent that? Well, as long as we have capitalism, I well, there's two things. You mentioned the rent moratoriums. You're right. They are, um, um, uh, it's phony if you say you don't have to pay your rent for X amount, but you're not off the hook for the money. So when the moratoriums end, people could be on the hook for thousands of dollars and you're going to have more evictions. So you're just kicking the can down the road. Uh, as far as... Um, uh, home ownership goes, uh, where we are having a, a housing bubble now. House, houses are being snapped up by uh, a, a, a relative of mine just refinanced a mortgage a month ago. It's already been sold. The mortgage has already been sold. So it's like, ah, shades of 2008 again. Um, we have these Wall Street firms who are buying up houses. So we, we see that that's what all the capitalism does at this point of this, the end stage that people refer to where um, it's more and more um, uh, predatory, uh, does less and less for the largest number of people and steals more and more. So um, you're, you're right about that. We are looking at another housing bubble. That's always their plan. That's always their plan. 
And if people lose their houses, they don't care. They'll buy them up. And, you know, you can live as a renter or, or something. So um, I think we are looking at a repeat of um, uh, something that was so dangerous, especially to, to Black people. You know, Black people, we don't have the inherited wealth that white people have. Um, the little bit of wealth we have is generally tied up in home ownership. So when we lose our homes, it's, it's truly devastating. We don't have anything to fall back on, but that's exactly what they're planning to have a repeat. Last thoughts, Nick. Um, I, I'm regarding housing, I, I, I'm going to let uh, Mari Kimberly go because I want to talk to Casey uh, Tennis because I, I talked to her a little bit earlier on. I just I was reading this before you got online, uh, how they put a lot of pressure on our uh, mayor here in Kansas City in order to give housing units to about 115 uh, homeless uh, people here in Kansas City. And this kind of relays on the old uh, conversation that we had earlier about how uh, we engage in the political uh system right now. We shouldn't rely on electoral politics. We should be relying on grassroots pressure that will actually help improve people's lives. I mean, in Kansas City, we got 115 people that are going to be housed now because of direct action. So maybe not invest so much in electoral politics, maybe focus on stuff like that. And um, I'm, I'm talking about this because I want to talk to those people to get more information uh, because this is the kind of stuff the left needs to be doing. And this is, uh, if we have something like this all across the city, because we have a homeless union union here in Kansas City. We need to have something like that all across the nation. And imagine the amount of good and imagine uh, the amount of human suffering that we can decrease if we had homeless unions all over, across the city exactly. who advocate for the same thing we did now. So that why, that why I want to see the left engage with when it comes to the housing crisis. Yeah, homeless unions, uh, unemployed unions, absolutely. You're absolutely right. And um, Yes, before I go, I just want to remind your viewers, I, I want to thank you for having me on. It's been a blast. Um, I love talking about this stuff. I uh, just want yeah, to- thank you, uh, it was fun. Uh, yeah, it thank was. You. I want to remind uh, your viewers, those who may not be familiar with us, uh, to read Black Agenda Report. We publish every Wednesday, uh, news and analysis from a Black left perspective. So we talk about the domestic issues, international issues, we have Black Agenda Radio, we have uh, interviews, we have book reviews. So anyone not following uh, blackagendareport.com should should do that. Yeah, definitely check that out. And that's and I'm glad that we got you on very early on the Fred uh, Hampton Le Leftist Network uh, project that we're working on. Because the reason we came up with this is because we think uh, Black leftists need a voice. And uh, we we want to show solidarity with you guys, what you guys are doing over there, because uh, the black leftist point of view has been left out of politics too much. So we appreciate the work you do. And everybody, definitely check out the Black Agenda Report. Now, talk to the RJ. Um, for me, check me out. I'm a progressive martial artist on YouTube. Um, also, I'll be a regular host here at Fred Hampton Leftist. Also, uh, check me out at progressive. Uh, martialartist.substack. I'll be writing a piece about our broken uh, two-party duopoly and why we have to advocate for Rachel going this week. Um, and you can expect the article very similar. My last article was on defund the police. I write these articles about policy positions every month. Subscribe to all that. RJ, you got anything you want to sign us off, sign us off with? Well, I want to thank Margaret very much for coming and joining with us. You know, being a youngster, it's just amazing listening to you, learning from your knowledge and your wisdom about these topics. So and thank you for bearing with me with my very crappy internet, <laughs> especially going on right now. Um, I do want to send out a reminder to our viewers to make sure to uh, check out Margaret 
It's a book, Prudential, Black America and the Presidents. And again, I just want to thank you for coming on. Yep, there's the book. <laughs> and oh, also to yeah, also too tonight I'll be also be doing a double header tonight. I'll be having Chris Smalls on uh, tonight at eight, at nine p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So I'll be interviewing him. We'll have a discussion about the um, the fallout with the Amazon unionization drive. Many of us know that it did fail, so we'll, we'll be talking about that. And um, we'll be having also having an interview with CJ on Saturday with Thomas Frank. That'll be released after shortly. So I just wanted to give you guys an update on that. And I want to thank everyone for coming on and watching the RJ Show with our Fred Hampton co-host uh, Nick and our guest Margaret Kimberly. And signing thank out. Thank you very much. Thank you guys. Thank you guys. Thank you very much.